Chapter Ten of Non-Combatants and Others by Rose Macaulay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Evening in Church. Alex was huddled on her bed in a rug. She had taken two aspirin tablets because her head ached, and really one is enough. She felt cold and low. She was occupied in not thinking about Paul or the war. It was rather a difficult operation, and took her whole energies. Paul was insistent. She pressed her hands against her eyes, and saw him on the darkness, her little brother, white-faced, with the nervous smile she knew. Paul in a trench, among the wounded and killed, seeing things, hearing things, taken suddenly sick, unable to leave off, putting his head above the parapet, trying to get hit, called sharply to order by superiors. Paul desperate, at the end of his tether, in the night full of flashes and smashes and laughter and grumbling and curses. Paul laughing too and talking, as she and Paul always did when they were hiding things. Paul in his dugout, alone. Unseen, he supposed, with only one thought, to get out of it somehow. The shot, the pain, like flame. The men approaching, who knew. Paul's face, knowing they knew. White, frightened, staring, pain swallowed up in shame. The end. How soon? Ingram hadn't said that. Anyhow, the end. And Paul, out of it at last, slipping into the dark alone. A noble end, Mrs. Frampton had said, not a wasted life. Anyhow, all over for Paul, as Terry had said. And then what? Ingram hadn't said that either, nor had Terry. No one could say, for no one knew. What if anything did come then? Darkness, nothingness, or something new? He has begun to live now, dear, for ever and ever, Kate had said. World without end, amen, Mrs. Frampton had rounded it off. World without end. What a thought. Poor Paul, finding a desperate way out from the world, slipping away into another which had no way out at all. But Mrs. Frampton's and Kate's world without end was a happy, jolly one, presumably, and the more of it the better. It would give Paul space for the life he hadn't lived here. Oh, could that be so? Was it possible, or was it, as so many people thought, only a dream? Who could know? No one, till they came to try, and then perhaps they would know nothing at all either way, not being there any more. Yet people thought they knew, even here and now. Nicky's friend Mr. West... He presumably thought he knew. Anyhow, if not going so far as that, he had taken a hypothesis and was, so to speak, acting, thinking and talking on it. He was clever too. Mrs. Frampton and Kate thought they knew too, but they weren't clever. They believed in God, but Alex could have no use for the Violette God. Mrs. Frampton's God was the Almighty an omnipotent being who governed all things in gross and in detail, including the weather, 
although the connection here was mysteriously vague, a god of crops and sun and rain who spoke in the thunder, a truly pagan god, though Mrs. Frampton would not have cared for the word, of chastisements and arbitrary mercies, who was capable of wrecking ships and causing wars in order to punish and improve people, the god of the act of god in the shipping regulations, a god who could and would, unless for wise purposes he chose otherwise, keep men and women physically safe, protect them from battle, murder and sudden death, an anthropomorphic god in the semblance, for some strange reason known only to the human race, of a man, a god who somehow was responsible for the war, a god who ordered men's estates so that there should be a wholesome economic inequality among them. Such was Mrs. Frampton's god, in no material way altered from the conception of the primitive Jews or the modern South Sea Islanders who make God in their image. He had no attractions for Alex, who could not feel that a god of weather was in any way concerned with the soul of the world. Kate's god, on the other hand, was for Alex enshrined in the little books of devotion that Kate had lent her sometimes, and all of which she found revolting, even on the hypothesis that you believed that sort of thing. They propounded ingenuous personal questions for the reader to ask himself, such as, Have I eaten or drunk too much? Have I used bad words? Have I read bad books? As if, thought Alex, anyone would read a bad book on purpose, life being so much too short to get through the good ones, unless one had the misfortune to be a reviewer like Nicky, or to have bad taste like many others, and then wasn't it rather a misfortune than a fault? Have I been unkind to animals, the inquiries went on? Have I obeyed those set over me? Have I kept a guard of my eyes? A mysterious phrase, unexplained by any footnote, and leaving it an open question whether to have done so or to have omitted to do so would have been the sin. Alex inclined to the former view. It somehow sounded an unpleasant thing to do. These books adopted a tone too intimate and ejaculatory for Alex's taste, and they were, it must be admitted, about all she knew of Kate's God, and her distaste for him merely meant that she disliked some of Kate's methods of approach. Alex felt vaguely that West's God was different. There was no softness about him or about West's approach to him, no sentimental sweetness, no dull piety, but energy, effort, adventure, revolt, life taken at a rush. Dynamite, West had said, to blow up the world. Poetry, too. Harsh and grim poetry, often, but the real thing. Kate's religion might be sung in hymns by Faber, Mrs. Frampton's in hymns by Dr. Watts. West's had very little to do with any hymns sung in churches and it was West's religion which thought it was going to break up the world in pieces and build it anew. Certainly neither Mrs. Frampton's nor Kate's would be up to the task. They would not even want it. Mrs. Frampton worshipped a god of things as they are, who has already done all things well, and Kate, one who is little concerned with the ordering of the world at all, but only with individual souls. One would like to know more about West's God. You should go to church, West had told her. You'd find it interesting. She might find it so, of course. 
Anyhow, she could try. Paul was driving her to find things out. His desperation and pain, her own, all the world's, must somehow break away through, out and beyond, fling open a gate onto new worlds. Anyhow, it might take one's mind off, help one not to think. It occurred to Alex that she would go to church this evening. It seemed at the moment the simplest way of watching these odd mystical forces, if there were any such forces at work. She would be able thus to see them concentrated, working through a few people gathered together for the purpose. Alex's acquaintance with Sunday evening services, it may be observed, was rudimentary. 2. Meanwhile there was tea. Alex went down to it. There were Mrs. Frampton, Kate, a Mrs. Buller from Anzac next door, and a toasted bun. Mrs. Frampton said to Alex, "'You do look low, dear. I'm sure it's a good thing you came home. Biliousness isn't a thing to play with. Suppose you were to go to bed straight away and let Kate bring you up a nice hot cup of tea there?' Kate said playfully, this is what Sunday outings lead to. They were both at a great distance, as if Alex were at the bottom of the sea. So was Mrs. Buller, who talked to Mrs. Frampton about girls. Girls are, of course, an inexhaustible and fruitful topic. There are so many of them coming and going, and nearly all so bad. Mrs. Frampton and Mrs. Buller and Kate all found them interesting, if a nuisance. Alex found them a safe subject. Mrs. Buller was saying, "'And one thing I have made up my mind, Mrs. Frampton, "'never again will I have a GFS girl in my house. "'Besides all the meetings and things at all hours, "'to have the girls associate coming into my kitchen "'and talking about prayer, "'it was prayer for I overheard, "'and ending up with a kiss you could hear upstairs. "'It was more than I could be expected to stand. "'And the girls smashed three cups that same afternoon,' and answered me back in a downright impertinent way. So I said, if that's what your GFS teaches you for manners, the sooner you and I part company the better. And I gave her her month. I'm sure you were right, said Mrs. Frampton, though of course one mustn't put it all on the GFS. She said this because of Kate, who was a church worker. But as it happened, Kate did not care for the GFS, having fallen out with the local secretary, and also having been told by her vicar that it was a society which drew too rigid an ethical line, and no denominational line at all. Kate also drew rigid ethical lines, when left to herself and her own natural respectability. The comic spirit must be largely responsible for driving people like Kate into the Christian church, a body which, whatever opprobrium it may have at various times incurred, has never yet been justly accused of respectability. So Kate joined in about girls and the GFS. Mrs. Buller said, However, we may be thankful we aren't in the country, for my sister at Stortford has had five soldiers billeted on her, and how is her girl to keep her head among them all? She won't, of course. Girls in a uniform? It goes to their heads like drink. It does seem an upset for your sister, said Mrs. Frampton. "'And Bertie's started again, wanting to enlist,' continued their visitor, who had many troubles. "'If I've told him once, I've told him fifty times. "'Not while I live, you don't, Bertie. "'So I hope he'll settle down again. "'But he says he'll only be fetched later if he doesn't.' 
Such rubbish. He actually wants to go as a common soldier, not even a commission. Think of the class of company he'd be thrown into, not to speak of the risk. Fancy his thinking his father and I could let him do such a thing. Mrs. Frampton made sympathetic sounds. They had tea. They went on talking of Belgians, Zeppelins, bulbs and girls. Belgians as a curiosity, in the corner house. Zeppelins as murder, to call that war, you know. Bulbs as a duty, to be put in quite soon. And girls as a nuisance, to be changed as speedily as may be. Mrs. Buller stayed till nearly six. "'It's always a treat to see Mrs. Buller,' said Mrs. Frampton. "'But fancy, it's nearly time to get ready for church.' Mrs. Frampton's church was at half-past six. Kate's was at seven. It was to Kate's that Alex wanted to go. She did not think that Kate's church would be much use, but she was sure that Mrs. Frampton's wouldn't. Mrs. Frampton's was florid Gothic outside, with a mellifluous peal of bells. Kate's was of plain brick, with a single tinny bell. Mrs. Frampton's looked comfortable. Kate's did not. The road into another world, if there was another world, surely would not be a comfortable one. 3. Kate was pleased when Alex said she was coming. She thought the little books had borne fruit. "'It'll be something to do,' said Alex cautiously. "'I hope Mr. Allison will preach,' Kate said. "'He's so helpful always.' Alex wondered if Mr. Allison knew about another world and if he would tell in his sermon. If he did not, he would not be helpful to her, probably not even if he did. They went diagonally across the little common to the unpretentious brick church whose bell tinkled austerely. It was an austere church, both within and without, and had a sacrificial beauty of outline and of ritual that did not belong to Mrs. Frampton's church, which was full of cheery comfort and best hats and hymns A&M. Kate's church had an oblative air of giving up. It gave up succulent, completed tunes for the restrained rhythms of plain song, which, never completed, suggest an infinite going on. It gave up comfortable pews for chairs which slid when you knelt against them. Its priests and congregation gave up food before mass and meat on fast days. The chief luxury it seemed to allow itself was incense, of which Alex disliked the smell. Certainly the air of cheery everyday respectability which characterises some churches was conspicuously absent. This church seemed to be perpetually approaching a mystery, trying to penetrate it, laying aside impedimenta in the quest. The quest for what? That seemed to be the question. The candles on the far altar quivered and shone like stars. They sang hymns out of little green books. They began by singing in procession a long hymn about gardens and gallant walks and pleasant flowers and spiders' webs and dampish mists and the flood of life flowing through the streets with silver sound and many other pleasant things. Alex glanced at Kate curiously. Kate, prim and proper, so essentially a violette, seemed in herself to have no point of contact with such strange, delightful songs, such riot of attractive fancy. For this was poetry, and Kate and poetry were incongruous. 
poetry. Having found the word, Alex felt it pervade and explain the whole service. The tuneless chants, the dim glooms and twinkling lights, the austerity. Kate interpreted this poetry for her own needs through the medium of little books of devotion for which prose was far too honourable a word, jargon rather, pious, mushy, abominable. It was odd. Kate seemed to be caught in the toils of some strange, surprising force. Alex hadn't learnt yet that it is a force nowhere more surprising than in the unlikely people it does catch. The further question may then arise. How is it going to use them? Can it use them at all? Or does the turning of its wheels turn them out and get rid of them? Or does it retain them unused? It is certainly all very odd. This essentially romantic and adventurous and mystical force seems to have a special hold on many timid, unromantic and unimaginative persons. This essentially corporate and Catholic body lays its grasp as often as not on extreme individualists. Perhaps it is the unconscious need in them of the very thing they have not got that makes the contact. Perhaps it reveals poetry and adventure to those who could find them in no other guise. Perhaps it links together in a body those who must otherwise creep through life unlinked, gives awareness of the community to the otherwise unaware. Perhaps on the other hand it doesn't. The powers in human beings of evading influences and escaping obvious inferences is unlimited. The lights were suddenly dimmer. Someone got into the pulpit and preached. He preached on a question, Who will lead me into the strong city? A very pertinent inquiry, Alex thought, and just what she wanted to know. Who would? Who could? Was there a strong city at all? or only chaos and drifting ways of terror and unrest? If so, where was it, and how to get there? The strong city, said the preacher, is the city of refuge for which we all crave, and more especially just now, in this day of tribulation. The kings of the earth are gathered and gone by together, but the hill of Zion is a fair place and the joy of the whole earth. Upon the north side lieth the city of the great king. God is well known in her palaces as a sure refuge. Above the noise of battle, above the great water-flides, is the city of God that lieth foursquare, unshaken by the tempests. Jolly, thought Alex, and just where one would be. But how to get into it? One had tried, ever since the war began, to shut oneself away, unshaken and undisturbed by the tempests. One had come to Violette because it seemed more unshaken than would end, but Violette wasn't really somehow a strong city. The tempest rocked one till one felt sick. Where was this strong city? Any strong city? Well, all about. Everywhere, anywhere, said the preacher. One could hardly miss it. Tis only your estranged faces that miss the many splendid thing. And he quoted quite a lot of that poem. Then he went on to a special road of approach, quoting instead, I went into the sanctuary of God. Church, Alex presumed. Well, here she was. No, it transpired that it wasn't evening service he meant. He went on to talk of the mass. 
That, apparently, was the strong city. Well, it might be if one was of that way of thinking, but if one wasn't. Did Kate find it so? And was that why she went out early several mornings in the week? And what sort of strength had that city? Was it merely a refuge, well bulwarked, where one might hide from fear? Or had it strength to conquer the chaos? West would say it had, that its work was to launch forces over the world like shells, to shatter the old materialism, the old comfortable selfishness, the old snobberies, cruelties, rivalries, cant, blind stupidities, lies. The old ways, thought Alex, which were the same ways carried further, West would say, of destruction and unhappiness and strife that had led to the bitter hell where boys went out in anguish into the dark. The city wasn't yet strong enough, apparently, to do that. Would it be one day? "'I will not cease from mental fight,' cried the preacher, who was fond, it seemed, of quoting poetry, "'nor let my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land.' The next moment he was talking of another road of approach to the city on the hill, besides going to church, besides building Jerusalem in England, a road steep and sharp and black, we take it unawares, forced along it, many boys are taking it this moment, devoted and unafraid, unafraid, thought Alex, and suddenly we are at the city gates, they open and close behind us, and we are in the strong city, the drifting chaos of our lives behind us, to be redeemed by firm walking on whatever new roads may be shown us. God, who held us through all the drifting, unsteady paths, has led us now right out of them into a sure refuge. How do you know? thought Alex. Beyond the steep dark road there may be chaos still, endless, worse chaos, or, surely more natural to suppose, there may be nothing. How did people think they knew, or didn't they? Did they only guess and say what they thought was attractive? Did Kate know, and Mrs. Frampton? How could they know, people like that? How could it be part of their equipment of knowledge, anything so extraordinary, so wild, so unlike their usual range as that? They knew about recipes and servants and dusting and things like that, but surely not about weird and wonderful things that they couldn't see. Alex could rather better believe that this preacher knew, though he did sometimes use words she didn't like, such as tribulation and grace. It would seem that preachers sometimes must. It is impossible and not right to judge them. When the sermon ended abruptly and they sang a hymn of Bunyan's about a pilgrim, 402 in the green books, one was left with a queer feeling that the church had its hand on a door and at any moment might turn a handle and lead the way through. Alex caught for a moment the forces at work. Perhaps West was right about them, and they were adequate for the job of blowing up the debris of the world. If only the church could collect them, focus them, use them. Kate and church people of Kate's calibre were surely like untaught children playing, ignorantly and placidly, with dynamite. They would be blown up if they weren't careful. They kept summoning forces to their aid, which must surely, if they fully came, 
shatter and break to bits most of the things they clung to as necessary comforts and conveniences. But perhaps people knew this, and therefore prayed cautiously, with reservations, so the powers came in the same muffled, rapid way, with reservations. Such were Alex's speculations as the music ended, and the congregation filed down the church and shook hands with the tired vicar at the door, and went out into the dark evening. The fog came round them, and choked the light that streamed from the church, and made Alex cough. They hurried home through the blurred, gas-lit roads. "'Did you enjoy the service?' asked Kate. "'I think so,' said Alex, wondering whether she had. "'It's queer,' she added, meaning the position of the Christian church in this world. But Kate said, "'Queer? Whatever do you mean? It was just like the ordinary.' like it always is. I wish Mr. Allison had preached, though. I never feel Mr. Daintree has the same touch. He preaches about things and people in general, and that's never so inspiring. He doesn't seem to get home the same way to each one. Now, Mr. Allison this morning was beautiful. Mr. Daintree, I always think, has almost too many ideas, and they run away with him a little. However, Kate's principal, one of them, was not to criticise the clergy. So she stopped. "'I wonder if Florence is in yet,' she said instead, "'and if she's left the larder open as usual "'and let that kitten get at the chicken. "'I shouldn't be a bit surprised. "'She is a girl.' Alex felt another incongruity. If Kate really believed the extraordinary things she professed to believe about the interfusion of two worlds, at least two, how then did it matter so much about chickens and kittens and Florence? Yet why not? Why shouldn't it give all things an intenser, more vivid reality, a deeper significance? Perhaps it did, thought Alex, renouncing the problem of the Catholic Church and its so complicated effects. "'You've got your cough worse,' said Kate, fitting the key into Violette's latch. "'You'd better go to bed straight, I think, and have a mustard leaf on after supper.' "'You're the colour of a ghost, child. "'Eve is back, I can hear.' "'So could Alex. "'I shall go to bed,' she said. "'I don't want supper.' "'While she was undressing, Evie came in to wash her hands for supper. "'Evie was radiant and merry. "'Hard luck you're having to go back, Al,' said Evie, "'splashing her face and hands. "'I'm stiff all over. "'I'm for a hot bath afterwards. "'We had a lovely time. "'Simply screaming it was.' "'Mr. Doy is rather a sport. "'They're all a jolly set, though. "'Even that Mr. Ingram, the one you were talking to, "'brightened up later on, though when first you turned back "'he looked as if he was his father's funeral. "'You must have made an impression. "'But he got over it all right and was quite chirpy.' "'Was he?' said Alex. "'I promised Mr. Doy to go out again with him next sat. "'He's quite determined. "'I don't know what Sid Vinny'll say, "'because I'd half promised him, but I don't care.' "'Sid's an old silly, anyhow.' "'Evie smothered herself in the towel, "'scrubbing her smooth skin that no scrubbing could hurt. "'Dommage, you being seedy,' said Evie, "'and pulled off her walking shoes. "'You'd have enjoyed the day no end. "'Still feeling sick? "'Oh, poor kid, bad luck. "'Well, there's the bell, I must run. "'I've heaps more to tell you, "'but you'd better go off straight to sleep after supper.' I won't disturb you when I come up. She ran downstairs. 
Alex heard her voice in the dining room below through supper. Evie had had a good day. Evie was lovely and jolly and kind and a good sort, but Alex did not want to see her or to hear her talk. 4. It was Kate who came up after supper with a mustard leaf, which she put on Alex's chest. Shall I read to you till I take it off? Kate said, and what she selected to read was the current issue of The Sign, the parish magazine she took in. Mrs. Frampton took The Peep of Day, which was the magazine of the church she attended. The mustard leaf, an ancient and mild one, which needed keeping on for some time, allowed of reading the sign almost straight through, apart from the parish news on the outer pages, which, though absorbing, is local and ephemeral, and should not be treated as literature. Kate began with an article on the organs in our churches, worked on through a serial called Account Rendered, a poem on the women of the empire, a page on waifs and strays, a few words to parents and teachers on the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, thoughts to rest upon, keeping well, some facts for our families, the Pitman's Amen, a short story, wholesome food for baby, and so at last to our query corner, wherein the disturbed in mind were answered when they had, during the month, written to inquire, Why does my clergyman worship a cross? Is not this against the second commandment? What amusements, if any, may be allowed on Sunday? If I take the communion, should I go to dancing classes? How can I turn from low church to high church? Should not church wardens be Christians? And about many other perplexing problems. The answers were intelligent and full. Never a bald yes or no, or we do not know. They often included a recommendation to the inquirer to try and look at the matter from a wider or higher standpoint, and, usually, to read the little book by an eminent canon that bore more particularly on his case. Alex got it all, from the organs in our churches to the Christian church wardens, mixed up with a mustard leaf, so that it seemed a painful magazine, but, one hoped, profitable. She looked at Kate's small prim head in the shadow under the gas, and thought how Kate had been through love and loss and jealousy, and still survived. But Kate's love and loss and jealousy could not be so bad. It was like someone else's toothache. "'We do not quite understand your question,' read Kate. This was on turning from low to high. "'You should try to detach yourself from these party names, which are often mischievous. We think you might be helped by the following books.' Twenty-five minutes. I should think that must be enough, even for that old leaf. Does it smart much? Dreadfully, said Alex, who was tired of it. Well, two minutes more, said Kate, and went on to the church wardens, who it seemed should be Christians, if possible. Now then, said Kate, advancing with cotton wool. Oh, said Alex, it's been on too long, Kate. You do make a fuss, said Kate padding her chest with cotton wool and tucking the clothes round her. Now you go off to Sleepy Town quick. Alex thought how kind Kate was. When one had any physical ailment, Violet came out strong. It was soft-hearted. Women are. 
5. When Kate had gone, Alex lay with her eyes tight shut and her head throbbing and tried to go to sleep, so that she need no longer make her brain ache with keeping things out. But she could not go to sleep, and she could not in the silence and dark keep things out, not Paul, nor the war, nor Basil, nor Evie. At last Evie came. Alex, feigning sleep, lay with tight shut eyes face to the wall. Every movement of Evie, undressing in her frightful loveliness, was horribly clear. Alex was afraid Evie, in passing her bed, would brush against her and that she would have to scream. If only Evie would get to bed and to sleep. Evie, after her undressing and washing, knelt in prayer for thirty seconds. What was Evie's God? Who should say? One cannot tell with people like Evie, or see into their minds. Then took her loveliness to bed, and fell sweetly asleep. Alex knew from her breathing that she slept. Then she unclenched her hands, and relaxed her body, and cried. End of chapter 10